Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello all, Daniel here, just wanting to jump in and make a quick appearance since I am taking some paternity leave from the show for a bit. And I don't want you all to forget about me. Um, seriously, though, I did want to drop in to tell y'all about some spooky goings on over on the Agora Podcast Network feed. It's October, the witching hour, and our label mates on the Agora Podcast Network are putting together a, a series of special episodes on the most creepitacular topics within their respective wheelhouses, and uh, including our own beloved Claude Myron Guzer who will be your guide to one of the strangest poems ever set to paper. Seriously, guys, he and I have, have talked about this one, and it's uh, it's truly uh, something to to behold. So I'm pretty excited about Claude digging in on that. Um, but uh, even better than that, though, uh, all of our label mates there on Agora will be uh, contributing, so it should be a very cool uh, series of special episodes, a cool way to get to know some of the other podcasters. Um, but yeah, y'all should check it out. And really, y'all should subscribe to the Agora Podcast Network feed to get all these cool specials, uh, plus all kinds of other cool content from the Agora family, like The Exchange, uh, an interview series where Tom Daly of American Biography uh, talks to some of your favorite podcasters to get all inside baseball about it. Um, And of course, take this opportunity to check out all the other cool shows in the Agora stable. Uh, In the meantime, enjoy some learned, high-minded conversation about Moliere, before I return to dumb it down a few shades uh, next month. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and today we've got something a little bit different. Uh, my regular co-host, Daniel, is off for a little bit of time. He'll be back soon, but many moons ago, he gave up the the skinny jeans of bachelorhood to don the buttless leather trousers of, or the buttless leather chaps of husbandry, 
And now he has eschewed the buttless leather chaps of husbandry for the cargo shorts of fatherhood. So he is getting used to having less than three hours of sleep a night. God bless you, Daniel. And he'll be back soon to talk to us about Tartuffe and Misanthrope. But right now, uh, I am blessed, let's say, to... <laughs> have an old friend of mine who is not only a francophile but an expert on dramatic history and the history of drama the history of theater uh this is matt shiflett matt thank you for coming on thank you for having me claude (laughs) um (laughs) i can never quite tell when the irony is dripping from your voice or when it's just um drizzling I have cultivated that. (laughs) I've known you for a long, long time, and that is true. Um, Matt is a professor of the history of theater, and as I mentioned before, he's also a Francophile. And he's here to talk to us today in this sort of brief mini-episode about French theatrical history and how Moliere sort of fits into that. And so I guess... Could you start us off by telling us a little bit about the background of Moliere? Who was he? Where was he from, aside from France? Uh, and how did he become a dramatist? Well, he was the son of drapers. Um, <laughs> his father was a draper in Paris. His grandfather was a draper in Paris. And that means he would have come from a middle-class background, Not that there was necessarily an identifiable middle class in Paris yet, but certainly these were people who would have made their own money rather than coming from nobility. Okay. And it would have been enough money for him to have gone to school. Mm -hmm. And his first biographer, who was one of the actors in his troupe, tells us that he did go to school. Um, And and I guess we have no reason not to believe him. In school, assuming he went, he he seems to have become very taken with dramatic literature, especially the work of Terence. We're told that Terence, the Roman playwright, was his favorite. And so as a young man, he went into theater, eventually changing his name. He was born Jean-Baptiste Poquelin. He took the name Moliere so as not to embarrass his father. Because the theater was not considered an especially respectable place to be. So is that somewhat comparable to the the state of the theater in Elizabethan Jacobean England? <clears throat> excuse me. The, the lack of respectability plus this influx of, I guess, educated middle class boys? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? No. Um, OK, so it, it seems like that that is one thing that the two have in common. Uh, this, uh, Well, all right. Let me back up for a second there. There's a, a thesis, at least something that I, I've come across from the literary end, that part of what gave rise to this sort of flourishing in the, the Elizabethan age is this group of educated middle class or lower middle class, or I suppose what we would call middle class men who, through some fluke, managed to get this great education but had no job, so they fled to England, managed to use the skills that they'd uh, garnered 
in college to make plays. Is that something similar to what Moyer did? How um, how common would it have been for a burgeoning middle class kid to have an education like that? Um, that's a good question that I'm not entirely prepared to answer in terms of, of how common was the education. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't know a lot of details. Okay. This is this sets the course for every other aspect of Moliere's life. Mm-hmm. We don't know a lot of detail. Okay. Um, he was a famously taciturn person. Huh. He didn't talk much about himself. He didn't talk much at all off stage. In fact, in one of his plays, there's a joke where uh, these two women are are talking about this time they inv- they invited this playwright over for dinner thinking he was going to be very witty and he turned out to be a total bore and they pull out a picture of Moliere. <laughs> so sort of meta theatrical joke there. Yes. All right. But Moliere's early ambition was not as a playwright. He was an entrepreneur. <clears throat> okay. At 21, he joins with some other more seasoned actors and opens a theater in Paris, hmm. the Illustre Theater, um, which was ballsy at the time mm-hmm. and would never have worked in a million years except that he happened to open this theater right after the Theater Marais, which is one of the two big theaters in Paris at the time, burns down. <laughs> so just the someone else's bad luck became his good luck. Yes, okay. at least for two years. Um, the theater was very successful for two years, and then the Marais was rebuilt. Oh. And they went into debt. <laughs> Moliere is imprisoned for debt. He calls in some favors. He gets out, and he takes his troop out to the provinces. Okay. so Especially the southern part of France, the Languedoc. And then we don't know much about what he does there for the next 15 years or so. Okay. So is this – all right, one more time. My frame of reference is Elizabethan Jacobean theater. Um, was this – I guess comparable to what a troop during in England would do. You pull your resources; it becomes a kind of joint stock company, <clears throat> and the troop itself uh, sort of makes its money back. Um, is that sort of kind of how f- French theater operates, or French theater troops operate at this time? You said he he invested in the theater itself. Was it more of an investment in the building or in the troupe? It was um, signing together in a corporate assumption of uh, liability. Okay. It still would have been with the patronage of wealthy people, aristocrats, uh, minor nobility. Okay. So that that brings up another question that I had for you. Uh, who was the French theater for? I, I think it's the cliche about Elizabeth and Jacobean that you had to hit the 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 low class, the burgeoning middle class, and the aristocracy all at once. Was that the same in the French theater? From a practical standpoint, yes, it was. Okay. Uh, at least getting tickets, uh, getting money from people coming in the door. You wanted to hit all uh, echelons of society. French theater wasn't really more aristocratic than English theater in that respect. Okay. But 
the intellectuals and the artists who were involved in French theater were part of a court culture that did not exist to the same extent in England. Okay. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? How would they be a part of the the court culture? I, I guess the, the stereotype is that the court culture would be just the aristocrats and aristocratic clerics, but how would these non-aristocrats be a part of that culture? Well, um, I think you have to go back to the establishment of the Académie Française okay. and the Pleiades. Keep in mind that we're talking about a, a different timeline here than when we're talking about Shakespeare in England or Elizabethan yeah. England. Yeah. Uh, we're at least two generations later. Okay. But in the early 17th century, um, after the death of Henry IV, mm-hmm. There was something of a vacuum of personality, if not necessarily a vacuum of power in French politics. Mm -hmm. And this is the age of Cardinal Richelieu. Sure. Richelieu, of course, wields a lot of power behind the scenes. He helps to build a a bureaucratic state, but he doesn't have the, the sort of public charm that Henry IV had. And so he relies on groups of poets and other artists, originally called the Pleiades, as an informal group that he eventually formalizes as the Académie Française. Okay, so it, there's a charm vacuum, and he fills it yeah. with writers. Okay, yes. so they perform that kind of public function. Um, you know, this seems comparable to something like Dryden, partially uh, propaganda, but also partially, well, you just being a good writer and me patronizing you make me look good. Oh, Dryden was taking his uh, cue directly from this. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. All right. So let's get back. He he goes to the south of France to try to make his money with the troupe, and we have – or, or Moliere does, not Dryden. And we have little, <laughs> <clears throat> I guess, little information about him from that time. How does he come back to Paris? He, come back, he comes back to Paris in 1648. Um, I'm sorry, 1658. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know... You know why we don't have a trigger there that we can see that's very clear. Because that area of his life is shrouded in mystery. But when he gets there, he's put up at the Petit Bourbon, which is a a theater in Paris that he has to share with an Italian commedia troupe. Okay. The Italian commedia troupe is run by a famous Italian comedian who specializes in the role known as Scaramouche. Okay. We all know from the Queen song, of course. <laughs> but Scaramouche, his his most noticeable aspect is his mustache. <laughs> he has a big, bushy mustache, mm. and that's that's a big part of the comedy. The character starts as sort of a a satire on Spanish national identity. He's he's full of pride, and he's very uh, over the top in the way that he speaks and acts, and he's talking about his brave exploits as a general, and he has the big bushy mustache. And 
I think it's easy to overstate how influenced Moliere was by Commedia, because certainly from our perspective, we see a lot of Commedia in his theater. Mm. But you have to look at him in the context of his time and see, well, he was definitely trying to go beyond it and do something else that other contemporary playwrights were relying on the Commedia tropes. Okay, so what were the Commedia tropes and what was he trying to do differently? Well, um, let's start with what he was doing the same. What were the tropes he was picking up on? Uh, Certain stock characters, especially absurd middle-aged gentlemen who made their money usually through trade, so they're not aristocrats, and so they don't have any of the manners and morals of the aristocracy. And so they're very greedy, they're very vinegary, they're kind of stupid people with money. Okay, so the nouveau riche. Yeah. um, The character that is most associated with this is Pantalone. Pantalone is known for his uh, stupid-looking red pants. (laughs) That's his name. But he becomes the inspiration, you know, even for contemporary fictional characters like Mr. Burns or Donald Trump. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> okay. I, I almost let that slide, but all right, good. So um, Moliere was playing in those, those sort of broad stereotypes. And the construction of a lot of his plots follow... So Commedia dell'arte was built around stock scenarios. Yeah. These were uh, plots that you would see play out. They were very familiar to the audience. That helped, especially for troops that were traveling internationally uh, in areas where, you know, Italian actors didn't speak French necessarily. So they needed to be playing along lines that would have been familiar to anyone who didn't even understand the language of what they were watching. Okay, so it's sort of like modern Hollywood. You have to make your comic book movie so blockbuster that it doesn't matter if the subtitles or the translations are shallow or horrible. You need to make it translatable across cultures in some ways. Sure, I can see that, yeah. And so one of the stock scenarios is... That Pantalone has a daughter who is in love with someone Pantalone doesn't want the daughter to marry. Pantalone instead has betrothed the daughter to the character of Il Dottore. Il Dottore is usually someone who is very educated, the doctor. He's gone to university, but he doesn't have any money. Mm -hmm. So Pantalone has the money. Il Dottore has the cultural cachet. Mm -hmm. It's a marriage of convenience. And then, of course, the servants are the ones who help the young daughter escape her father's uh, arranged marriage and actually end up married to the person she wants to be married to. So it's the Barber of Seville. It's the Barber of Seville. It's the Princess Bride. It's (laughs) – it it is one of the master plots of Western storytelling, really. Okay. So does the Commedia del Art – have anything to do with the old Roman comedies that Moliere was drawing from. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, please. Um, You find the prototypes of many of these characters and scenarios in Plautus, Mm -hmm. especially Plautus. Terence to a degree, but Plautus has more of the 
the physical bits. Mm-hmm. The bits were called in Italian Lazzi. These were little episodes that the performers would be familiar with that they could improvise around. They were just little short comic scenarios. Okay. So, for instance, one of the classics is the Lazzo of the Fly, where there's a fly buzzing around someone and they're trying to swat the fly and they keep missing and as they keep trying and trying to swat the fly, they go to greater and greater lengths and they end up destroying the room around them and everything in their path as they try to kill this fly. Okay. There's a Breaking Bad episode like that. Okay. So, I was good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, and that's based on the Lotso of the Fly. Yeah. So, okay. This, th- we're getting a sense that the, the Commedia dell'arte, it, it draws from sort of stock characters, stock scenarios, stereotypical things, broad comedy, would you say? Um, to the degree that I think I understand that term, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Physical circumstantial humor. Okay, there we go. Um, what was most Terence is considered more a comedy of character. Okay, and that and that that's a good segue to what Moliere brings in. Okay, that that was my next question: is what is he doing differently? Please, um, Moliere is first of all addressing contemporary topics. Okay, satirically. And that's not that's not really an element of Commedia dell'arte as a form of street theater, really. Um, at this time, Commedia dell'arte had just started to find some legitimacy in European courts, and uh, specifically continental European courts, I should say. Commedia never really makes it to England. Yeah, I, I was going to the say same there, way. there are some stock things that I recognize from English Elizabethan Jacobean comedy, but that seems very, very different, or, or, or at least those stereotypes seem quite a bit different than the Commedia del Art that you're, you're describing. Yes. I guess the more, um, the more accurate thing to say would be that Commedia does not make it into England until the 18th century. Okay. At which point it, it is a very different thing, and it's more based around the physicality of these characters, the harlequinades in the early 18th century theater. They will actually, in their own interesting circumspec, not circumspec, uh, circum, circum something, <laughs> in their own meandering way, will lead to melodrama. Okay. So getting back to Moliere, drawing from Terence, what is he trying to do? Is he moving away from these stock characters? Is he trying to develop his own stock characters? Is he working towards, like a, I, I suppose, a greater three-dimensionality as opposed to stereotype? I think dimensionality is a pretty good... Uh, explanation of what he's doing. Certainly in plays like the Misanthrope and Tartuffe, Mm -hmm. which uh, may even venture into the genre of tragic comedy. Huh. That would be my... All right. I don't want to get too much into how, but because I don't want to spoil this when, when Daniel and I dive into those two plays... But what do you mean by moving from comedy to tragicomedy? Please. 
Well, well, certainly in Tartuffe, especially in the last act, we see the characters in a dire situation. Mm. And that is uh, consonant with the definition of tragic comedy at the time, at least on the continent, okay. uh, because it is defined differently in England. But you have characters who are in a situation that could be lethal, but nobody dies. Okay. So that – I want to skip over tragic comedy and come back to it in a little bit. I, what was the state of tragedy in Moliere's time? Tragedy was where the money was. Uh-huh. And when we look at Moliere and we see comedy, what we're missing is that Moliere was first and foremost, at least in the early part of his career, an entrepreneur. Okay. And when we look at the seasons that he's putting on, and we have better records of those even in his time in the provinces than we have of the circumstances of his life, his troupe is doing mostly tragedy. Hmm. The troupe itself was doing tragedy, yes. and yet he was writing comedy. Yes. Okay. If I were to hazard a guess, and of course, you, you know, we're in the realm of speculation when we discuss why anybody writes anything, <laughs> but if I were to take a guess, Moliere is writing comedy because, A, it allows him more freedom to write about what he wants to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, There's been at this point two generations of uh, debate over the proper way to do tragedy and it has the force of real bureaucracy behind it with the Académie Française. Okay. But also because he can write comedy without the weight on his shoulders of being compared to Cornier. Okay. So would Cornier be the, the heavy hitter of the day that he's trying to maneuver out from under? Oh yeah, Cornier was the the daddy figure of the Moliere's and the Racines okay. of seventeenth century France. Why? Um, Cornier was the most popular and most critically lauded playwright of his generation. Okay, and when we're talking about being cl- critically lauded. You just mentioned the Academy Francaise. There is this yes. sort of official organ that is sanctioning what good tragedy is or good theater is and what yes. bad theater is. This is unfamiliar to English speakers, I think, because we don't have a, a bureaucracy for this sort of thing. The Academy Francaise still exists, and it is the authority on French language. Yeah. The dictionary that it puts out is – that is what French is. <laughs> uh, we have different English dictionaries. You can consult you know, different authorities and debate, but mostly the English language runs on convention. Yeah. And the Academy Francaise starts uh, – it, it does have some – interest in hammering out language because you have these different French uh, kingdoms which are ethnically related that are now being centralized under a king, under a government. Okay. So it's a centralization of language. Is it also a centralization of culture in picking out 
these are the works that are sanctioned. These are the works that are not sanctioned. These are the works that are literary culture. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So it sees literature as an extension of its debate on language. Okay. So the, the cliche or excuse me, I guess the stereotype of a French theater that I learned back in high school, I suppose we both learned back in high school and thus we were taken. I wasn't listening. (laughs) I've known you a long time. Um, (laughs) But the cliche was that uh, French theater was, was beholden to the Aristotelian rules. Um, You know, that, that's part of the, I guess the legend of the rise of someone like Goethe who, and the Sturman Drang, which wrote to get out from under the rules. But how much of this is being beholden to Aristotle and how much of it is um, this official organ, like the two sort of working in coordination? Aristotle was just a red herring. <laughs> And I, I want to pause here for five seconds to say uh-huh. that um, you can't see Matt at the moment, but he really does look like Tim Curry. <laughs> um, neoclassicism goes back to Italy in the 16th century. And what scholars like Robertello and Cintio are trying to do in their articulation of neoclassicism is actually reconcile Aristotle with Horace. Okay. And Horace's idea, sort of the main idea in his Ars Poetica, is that good storytelling can be socially useful. And that's really the aim of neoclassicism. This is uh, an age in which theater is starting to become something that's professionalized and become something that's secular. And so now that it's no longer a tool of the church to, to teach Bible stories and church morals, the question is, of what social use can theater be? Neoclassicism is a... a an effort to codify how theater can be used to teach proper morals and uh, the right way of making one's way in the world. Okay, so Aristotle, okay, I wouldn't call him a red herring, but it's it seems like a base that you can call back to that's not necessarily the official source, the official power is coming from somewhere else, but it's right. – it's, uh, uh, I guess, an authority to draw from. All of the the cults of nationality that cropped up in the 16th and 17th centuries in Italy, in France, and in England, mm-hmm. certainly in Spain, uh, they looked back to Rome as a forebearer. Mm-hmm. Coming up with a sense of national identity at this time was really an exercise in explaining why you, your country, your people were the proper inheritors of the Roman Empire. Okay. And of course, the Romans worshipped the Greeks. <laughs> and and so Aristotle sort of comes in the back door that way. Okay. But the, the principle they were going for is something called verisimilitude. Right. You can only teach people through theater if what they see on stage – 
resembles the world they live in. So it's not so much about the unities as it's about a kind of realism. Right. All right. The unities are just a tool in that because <clears throat> if you write a play – so unities, we're talking about unity of time, mm-hmm. unity of place, mm-hmm. and unity of action. And unity of time just holds that – what happens in the play should happen within 24 hours because the audience will start to see the play for the illusion it is if we start jumping ahead two weeks into the future. And unity of place is there because if we keep changing the sets to go from, you know, one part of Europe to another part of Europe, then we're drawing attention to the artificiality of the set when we should be drawing the audience's attention to the verisimilitude. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so... Sorry, there's there's a thought that's lurking in the back of my head that I can't quite articulate that I probably shouldn't try now, but I'm going to anyway <laughs> because I'm a fan of uh, brilliant failures. Um, this seems kind of like the backwards of Beckett, where Beckett has is using the unities almost to draw attention to the artificiality of the stage, but rather um, also to draw our attention to the fact that this is shared time. The shared space, the shared time between audience and actors, it's all one in some way, shape, or form, and um, hence the one acts. I have known you for a long time, and I can attest that when we were in middle school, <laughs> I could have brought something up, and you would have said, you know, this this rather reminds me of Beckett. <laughs> I was a depressed kid. All right. So anyway, <laughs> let's move on from our diversions, if if at all possible. Uh, so, all right. Moliere is writing comedy, uh, your, your speculation, and it seems to me a reasonable speculation, writing comedy in some ways to get out from under the pressures of tragedy and the pressures of the bureaucracy, the pressures of Cornier. Uh, how does the tragedy or how does the comedy sell? D- do people go to see his comedies? Yes. Um, they are a scandal mm-hmm. among the the cognoscenti, okay. the intellectuals and other writers. Of course, he's he's very he is so successful at doing what he's doing that they're just mad with envy. And that's a big part of the scandals that come, especially from his play Le Col de Femme. 
And from Tartuffe. Okay, why why were those so I I I'm assuming from what you're telling me that those plays were hits. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, L'Ecole de Femme was definitely a hit. Tartuffe, in its original form, mm-hmm. was part of a royal banquet and was not staged in its full form until five years later and then only with the intervention of the king. Okay. So what made the first play a hit? <laughs> um, why Why would people go see it, if you can answer that succinctly? I can't answer it succinctly, because <laughs> Moliere didn't answer it succinctly. Well, In fact, he wrote a whole play about why. Well, I've um, known you, and I could have asked you that question <laughs> in middle school. <laughs> There's no way we would have gotten a succinct answer. But okay, so it for whatever reason, it, it drew an audience. Was it satirical? Was it something? It was okay. satirical. It was... Uh, so the plot of the play is that there is this middle-aged gentleman, played by Moliere, who has a ward that he has raised from the time she was four years old, and he wants to marry her. Okay. Because uh, he has raised her so that he could marry her, <laughs> and he has kept her sequestered from the world. Okay. He has not let her read, you know, what is fashionable to read in France at the time, and he has instead instructed her in how to be a good wife, which is basically to be stupid. Okay. So it, and of course, in Commedia fashion, she falls in love with some other young man, and the servants are involved in lots of hijinks, and it follows the the Commedia pattern to some extent. But the degree to which he was lashing out at identifiable contemporary figures, and the. Uh, Let's say he worked a little bit blue in his comedy. <laughs> okay. So for those two reasons, the Kanishinti, uh would have found it objectionable. Um, if you recognize the people being satirized, you open yourself up for scandal. Uh, and if you work a little blue, then you get called a vulgarian. Yes. Okay. So – was it also – but were those the things that, that helped to make it successful? Oh, I believe so. Okay, okay. So uh, this becomes a big scandal in French uh, literary society for the next year and a half okay. about. And Moliere writes another play as a response. Okay. It's called uh, The Critique of L'Ecole du Femme, and it involves – people sitting around who have just gone to see the play talking about the play and whether or not they like it. So it's it's almost meta-satirical. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Gotcha. And and that's where that's where Lady Gaga comes into this. <laughs> okay, you said what? beforehand that you wanted to discuss Lady Gaga and I, I do I, because Moliere, one of the things that powers his satire and his theater is that he is very aware of himself as a public figure. He is not only the the playwright, but the actor playing a lot of these absurd parts. And so he has a, 
a stage presence. Mm-hmm. People see him as a character that overlaps in a lot of significant ways with who he really is. So how do you differentiate the the actor from the role? How do you differentiate the pop star mm-hmm. from the persona? Or how do you – the, the performer from the persona? And he actively plays with this. Okay. In his drama. It is something that he – so I told you that he – he had something of a mid-career mentorship from this Scaramouche, mm-hmm. uh, Italian performer. And after that, he starts wearing a mustache on stage in all of his roles. Okay. And it's almost like he's playing versions of the same character who is identifiable through the mustache. A good uh, frame of reference would be Charlie Chaplin. Okay, sure. You know it's Chaplin because of the mustache. Right. And each character is distinct in that it's in that the character is in their own separate story, but the audience is invited to see a continuity between them. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So he starts playing with that and makes the 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 comedy a little bit more self aware in a way. Yes, oh. and so when he gets to the misanthrope. Mm-hmm. And he plays uh, the main character. I'm terrible with character names, and I can't remember right now. What is that guy's name? Well, that's okay. Let's just call him the misanthrope. I, I'm look uh, the misanthrope. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> he is. Uh, he goes without a mustache for the first time. Aha. Uh-huh. Alceste, of course, Alceste. And so, what he may be communicating to the audience here is that Alceste's critique of French society is Moliere's critique of French society, that he's talking from a sincere place Mm -hmm. here. But he is so in control of that persona and that message, we can't necessarily take that seriously either. Uh This is the conclusion he wants us to draw. And then, of course, uh, famously, Moliere ends up dying on stage <laughs> while he's playing the main character in uh, The Imaginary Invalid. So he's playing a character who thinks he's sick. And he's sick, and he dies, and the audience laughs when he collapses, but he really collapsed. Uh, so we're back. Unless he didn't. You know, it's entirely possible. Maybe he staged it. Maybe, because they did dig up his bones. Uh-huh. Uh, years later, after he was buried, uh, which he had to be buried in the middle of the night because church people objected to having him buried in a holy cemetery. Sure, But they dig up the bones years later and decide it's not him. What? So, so possibly he's still alive, no. living on an island somewhere with Elvis and Andy Kaufman. <laughs> but that's the kind of character that, that Moliere is in French society. He's a bit of a Lady Gaga, a bit of an Andy Kaufman, uh-huh. who is playing trickster with his own persona. <laughs> <laughs> this is fascinating. So, speaking of how the persona... Uh, implants itself on the play. Sure. I think this is a good time to talk about incest. <laughs> so when Moliere, at the age of 21, opens this theater in Paris, he does so with an older, already somewhat famous and notorious actress named Madeleine Béjar. And they are... they 
end up touring the provinces together and are lovers. There is this is a big theatrical family, the Béjar. Uh, Louis Béjar, her brother, is also a member of the troupe. And then there is Armand Béjar, a young woman who is about 20 years younger than Madeleine. Most people, at least at the time, believe that Armand is Madeleine's daughter. And then Moliere marries Armand. May have been Madeleine's daughter, may have been Madeleine's much younger sister. But uh, in either case, this would have been someone who grew up in Moliere's household. Gotcha. And that becomes a big scandal. Uh, it's one of the things that people hurl as an accusation in the controversy over L'Ecole du Femme. Okay. Which, remember, is a play about an older gentleman marrying a young woman that he's raised in his household. So it, it really is this kind of art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life. It's it's yes. Wildian before Oscar Wilde. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> and so accusations of uh, – because Moliere was Madeleine's uh, lover, so many people posited that Armand could have been his own daughter. Gotcha. And then they have a child together, which he names after Madeleine. <laughs> so he's not shying away from the controversy. He's courting the controversy. No. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. So the the Lady Gaga analogy really does fit. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So what is his reputation? I wouldn't be frivolous about Lady Gaga. Okay. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> I, far be it from you. Trust me. I know. Okay. So <laughs> – what what happens? He does his comedy thrive a- aside from the initial scandals or, or the scandal of success. Does his comedy thrive? Does this genre thrive? Are you talking about after his death? No, during his lifetime, and then after his death. Ah, um, this is something that is difficult <clears throat> to. Put a real judgment on. Take the misanthrope, for instance. I have seen scholars argue that the misanthrope was a complete failure mm-hmm. financially. Uh, it wasn't a success. And then I've seen people argue that it was one of his most successful plays. It just depends on how you want to measure the success. Okay. Uh, he had enough of a name recognition to to have more uh, uh, performances of the plays that he wrote, which is a big way of marking success in this period of theater history. Um, You don't have plays that just open up and run forever like Cats or Phantom of the Opera. You you do the play as many times as you think it will be profitable. Right. And if you see someone keep doing the play, then it must be profitable. Okay. But his first biographer – Lagrange is one of the actors in his troupe and also the accountant for the troupe. <laughs> so you either and get so, the best numbers or the most dubious numbers, right. possibly at the same time. Yes. Okay. So, so we can't entirely trust the initial biographies 
is there any other historical information that we can go back and check? I mean, I, I suppose the the records of ticket sales aren't still around, right? Okay. the The major age of Moliere biographies is actually in the late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and early 20th century. This is, in the first place, the age in which archival research really becomes professionalized and institutionalized, okay. not just in France, but throughout Europe and the U.S. But it's also the age of the Third Republic after the Franco-Prussian War, where there is uh, an interest in France's cultural history Mm. and its uh, middle class in particular. So in a lot of these biographies, Moliere is presented as a hero of the middle class. Okay. But that is kind of par for the course for Moliere throughout his afterlife is that he is the hero of whatever is current at the time. Well, that was was going to be my question is what is his reputation throughout – uh, French history and and where does he stand today? So in the late 19th, early 20th century, he's the hero of the middle class. How mm-hmm. did he fare in the 18th century? In the 18th century, he was seen – well, let's talk about the late 18th century. Sure. As the revolution approached, he was seen as a proto-revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that certainly – how he was seen affected what parts of his repertoire were in vogue. Uh-huh. During the revolution, you see a lot of Georges Dondin, <clears throat> which is a play that we don't actually talk about a lot now. Um, it's a satire. And a lot of his satires, like Georges Dondin, were done with the understanding that the the characters who were be, being made fun of were the bourgeois. Mm-hmm the people that uh, were going to the guillotine at the time. Yeah. As we move into the Napoleonic and Romantic era, um, Rousseau really likes the misanthrope. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want anything to do with the rest of Moliere, um, but he loves the character of Alceste, and he doesn't think that Moliere lets Alceste be Alceste, because... uh, Rousseau, of course, is is championing getting away from the ridiculous society that Moliere is uh, lampooning. Yeah. And so he sees an undercurrent in Moliere's work, and other romantics of the time start to pick up on that undercurrent and see him as a kind of uh, anti-civilization voice. Okay. And it's during that period, by the way, that... uh, Shakespeare becomes, you know, the great writer of tragedy and Moliere becomes the great writer of comedy sure, yeah. on an international scale. You don't see those two really compared in a strong way before the generation of the Romantic era. Okay. That that makes some sense. How about now? What, which plays of his are in the repertoire, if any are? And what is his reputation now? How does he fit into a kind of contemporary mindset? In France, he's he's still very much part of the repertoire. Okay. And also fodder for new drama. Okay. Plays are still being written about 
um, his relationship with his wife, possibly daughter, mm. and his relationship with the other daughter, uh, Esprit Madeleine, who is... Uh, I say other daughter. That assumes that Armand was his daughter. But, but this kind of weird, complicated relationship he has with his daughter through his wife, who ends up being kind of the executor of his literary reputation after he dies. So there's this sort of emphasis on the sexual politics and the gender politics. Yes. Okay, okay. There's also, throughout the 20th century, and I don't think this is unique to France, I think this is Moliere throughout the world, but there is especially an interest in Tartuffe and uh, misanthrope because... They have that tragicomic element. Uh-huh. And you see lots of productions that really emphasize the, the less comic aspects of those stories. Hmm. And doing away with the plays that rely more on, let's call it, buffoonery okay. for their plot. Okay. So why – if you care to speculate, and I know you do, <laughs> why, why, I love speculating. <laughs> why would the 20th century emphasize the tragicomic? <clears throat> well, my speculation is that uh, the 20th century, modernism in particular, a lot of <laughs> artists were trying to find a new mode for the tragicomic in creating uh, actions on stage that were not clearly tragic or comic, Mm. but instead invited a a kind of existential confusion in the audience. If we look back to the classical definition of tragedy and comedy, tragedy is about a character who is morally better than us, and comedy is about a character who is morally a little worse than us. Because the character is worse, we can laugh at them because we feel ourselves superior. Because the, char- the tragic character is better, we feel all the more keenly the fear and pity when we see the character suffer. Sure. But in the existential modernist age, here we are in a universe that is not – where there is no clear moral system. So, and so the tragicomic really is the ultimate artistic expression of existentialism because the audience doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. It has no system of understanding whether the characters of Waiting for Godot, for instance, are better than us or worse. Sure, sure. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So would you say that that's sort of key to Moliere's survival, this kind of protean aspect to him you can see in him or an age can see in him what it wants to see in some ways oh yes i i i very much think that it is the uh ambiguities of moliere that account for his afterlife because he does not because he amounts to more than what we can fit into the mentality of a particular moment in history, we can take those inconsistencies and apply them elsewhere. And his plays were very important to uh, one of the French theatrical practitioners who was so important to the modernist age, Jacques Capot, 
Okay. Who trained Charles Dulin and Louis Jouvet. Uh, Charles Dulin, in, uh, in turn, trained Antonin Artaud and uh, Marcel Marceau and so many others. Moliere was a big part of the repertoire that Capot did in his kind of experimental approach to theater, where he's trying to create something that has not a lot of set, not a lot of uh, spectacle on stage, but a lot of physicality. Sure. Sure. And embodies that that tragic comic complexity of character. So it's the ambiguities in the writing in some ways that that give a kind of power to Moliere. Yes. Okay. And and that ambiguity extends to the figure of Moliere himself. Of course, he was always conscious of himself as as a character and person on stage. Uh, but his biography fascinates us because ultimately we know so little about him. Sure. Well, I I think that's a a, a great place to sort of wrap it up. I, I, I this has really really been fascinating. Um, I've read these plays before. I think they're fun and funny, but this metatheatrical aspect to them, the ambiguousness, the drawing from the Commedia dell'Arte, and yet diverging from it, the roots in Terence, yet diverging from it, and this kind of protean mm-hmm. aspect that that really sort of helps me get a handle for the bundle if I can har- uh, sort of rip off of Empson of Moliere. And maybe to return to the uh, Lady Gaga comparison, he he does what a good pop musician does. He knows his antecedents, mm-hmm. and he plays with them. Sure. Uh, he is, I guess maybe it's because, as I said earlier, we tend to see Moliere in the terms of whatever we are in the middle of, but I'm saying he's a prototypical postmodern. Sure. Sure. Just as he was a prototypical romantic. Just as he was a prototypical Victorian. Yes. <laughs> and a proto-revolutionary. Exactly. All right, perfect. Well, thank you, Matt, so much for, for coming on and, and talking to me about Moliere. That really, really uh, puts things into perspective. And I'm going to make sure that Daniel listens to this before we talk about Tartuffe and Misanthrope, because I think that's really going to add to the conversation. I, I really appreciate having you on. Thank you so much. It was great. It was fun to talk. All right. Well, take care. And uh, I guess that wraps it up. Uh, Hope you enjoyed this episode and come back in a little bit of time. And Daniel and I are going to jump straight into the plays. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.